Hi guys, Nate here from CageCast. Just want to let you know that we started this podcast a long time ago with love in our hearts, but not a lot of technical knowledge. Some of the audio and the editing might be a little rough in these first few episodes. So please enjoy them for what they are. And know that we get better with age. Like a fine cheese. Or wine. That is all. Thanks for your support. Bye. You tell him I think he's a damn fool, Ed. You tell him I said so, H.I. McDonough. And if he wants to discuss it, he knows where to find me. In the Maricopa County Maximum Security Correctional Facility for Men, State Farm Road, number 31, Tempe, Arizona. I'll be waiting. I'll be waiting. podcast that joyfully dissects the filmography of one of America's most unique and engaging leading men, Nicolas Cage. I'm Nate Porter, and with me is Britt Porter. Hello, everyone. It has been three weeks since our last episode. Years. What, years? Oh, right, right, years. Either way, it's good (laughs) to be back. Okay, good. Good. Keep going. (laughs) I just like our little impromptu scripted banter. Go, yeah. keep going. Here's how We're Cage great Ca- actors, as good as him. Here is how Cage Cast works. We are in the process of watching every Nicolas Cage film in order according to the film's release date. We'll be reviewing every film in which Nicolas Cage had either a starring role or an integral supporting role. This week, we'll be watching the 1987 Coen Brothers classic Raising Arizona. We will be breaking down the film's plot and themes, and then afterward, we rate the film on a scale of zero to four stars in three different categories. The film as entertainment, the film as art, and then in terms of Cage's performance. Last week, slash year, uh, our cumulative score for Peggy Sue Got Married was a 16 out of 24 stars, which puts it in a tie for first place for the best Nick Cage movie ever out of the five that we've seen. So, will Raising Arizona claim the top spot this week? You will have to listen to find out. And I don't know why you wouldn't, because you were already listening. Why would you stop the listening 30 seconds into the podcast? Right. Try to commit to something in your life. We are exciting people. And you should listen to us talk about Nicolas Cage. Don't we sound exciting right now? What else do you have to do right now? Pay your bills? Go to work? Feed the dog? Actually, if you have to feed your dog, you probably should do that before you listen. Okay, fine. Pause the podcast. Feed the dog. Come back to the podcast. Uh, As a reminder, we do not share our scores with each other before the show. And then we also round out the show with our patented cage cast running totals rapid fire questionnaire, which might be my favorite part. Hey, Britt. What? Guess what? What? Uh, I want to do a new segment on CageCast. And what's it called? Uh, I don't know. But I want it to be about Nick Cage news stories of the week. What about Cage News? Sure. Or Nick News? Does that does that sound like um 
like Nickelodeon? Yeah, from it does. The 90s? It sounds like it's on Nick News. It sounds like you're about to be slimed. All right, at well, any that point. Won't work. Well, we'll keep with Cage News for now. The man leads an apparently interesting and fast-paced life, from what we can see. Exactly, and I think it could act as like a time capsule of what's going on in the world of Nicolas Cage as we record these. So, are you are you down? Sure, let's let's right, we'll try it. At least. Let's do it. All right. What's so, our What's our very first well, piece our of very Cage first, news? Well, uh, piece of Cage news is actually a trailer review, hey. and uh, the movie is called Outcast. Now, this actually could be a time where you pause your podcast, go to YouTube, watch the trailer of Outcast, and we will be right back with you to give you our thoughts. How'd you find me, lad? You were his friend. We fought alongside one another. You're the outlaw they call the White Ghost? I am the White Ghost. If we escape my brother, I will be the king. I will give you a reward. How old are you? 10. 14! If you save this boy, God will forgive you. Men cannot know God's will, but when they pretend to, it ends in blood. That I'll drink to. Okay, so we just watched. Wow, we just watched the Outcast trailer. Britt, what did you think? That's that looks like that's something right there. Yeah, no, I think it could be epic. I I will say it appears to have all of the all of the makings of a modern day Nicolas Cage movie. What do you, What do you mean by that? Well, there's facial hair, which he's sporting a lot of these days, like a bygone era. He seems to be super hot on the, you know, somewhat mysterious, like rogue, I don't know, crusaders of some kind. Uh But Hayden Christensen, I can't imagine that he is planning on making a big Hollywood comeback with this. Well, he's never been good, has he? Not. Well, Shattered Glass is the only movie he's ever been good in. And that's the only one that people ever bring up when you bring up Hayden Christensen. Right. You you saw that. He's like a newspaper reporter, and like he starts making up stories. No, I didn't oh, see that well, one. I saw it. He was good. Yeah, no, I mean... Because he played a fraud like he is in real life. And he's also sporting a very David Beckham-style hairdo that I can't imagine was too popular back in the days of the crusade. But that's just me. Right. Well, I think this looks great. I want to see it. It is coming out on September 26th. Woohoo! In China, what? <laughs> uh, must have been produced by the Ch- Chinese, our Chinese overlords, or something, <laughs> something like that. I don't know, <laughs> but I think it's going to come out in America in 2015. So we'll keep an eye out on that. So I'm not sure about Cage News, darling. I, I, we will see if it makes the final cut. Yeah. Okay. Well, you keep listening. Is, you keep listening, listeners. This has been awesome. This has been Cage News. <laughs> All right, we are reviewing Raising Arizona this week. But before we get to that seminal film, one more thing. 
We really want people to get the word out that we're back. It's been a little bit of a hiatus. We've had some... Just, a, just three years. Just a little. But we are still very passionate about Nicolas Cage and want to share that exciting adventure with you, dear we, listeners. We had to go to a funeral, so that's why it's where we were. A three-year one. Yeah. Anyway, if you could follow us on Twitter at, at CageCast or post about our show on your Facebook page or even email us feedback by sending a quick note to I love cagecast at gmail.com. And I understand that's assuming a lot that you love CageCast, but I want to hear you say it anyway. You want to know that someone had to type it in yeah, to, I their, want to hear all of them say to their yes, two exactly. into their it's, two line subliminal. on the email. Yeah. Or you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes because let's face it, this is a five-star podcast. Your high praise on iTunes will really help get our little podcast off the ground. Dear. We love people to follow along with us at home, to get involved, and to help America. That's right, America discover what's great or not so great about Nick Cage. Yes. Okay. All of the business and pleasantries out of the way. Yeah, screw pleasantries. Who cares? That's right. All right. Raising Arizona, let's get to some stats, shall Sweet. we? Let's do it. Release date. March 6th, 1987. Nick Cage had just turned 23 when this came out. Can you even imagine America? A 23-year-old Nick Cage I can running imagine. amok That's in right. Hollywood. It's exciting, really, Six to think about it. $6 million budget, and it made a little over $29 million, which is um, over $59 million in today's dollars. Not terrible. Not too shabby. No, that's... That's great, yeah. actually. Um, notable co-stars, Nate. Holly Hunter. Woohoo. What do you what do you know about her? Well, she ended up winning an Oscar for the piano many years later, if I'm not mistaken. It's one of my favorite instruments. Um, John Goodman. Oh, the incomparable. We'll 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 get to John. Yeah. J- JG will be discussed. <laughs> yeah, I on I, this podcast. I love him. Uh, a Cohen brothers favorite. Frances McDormand is in this. Young Frances McDormand. We'll talk about her, too. She was great. Well, we'll talk about all these people. Sam McMurray's in this as Glenn. William Forsythe as Evel. But obviously, Nick Cage and Holly Hunter own this movie. Directed by the Coen brothers. What's your experience with the Coen brothers? Not as much depth as your experience. But, oh, brother, where art thou? Didn't they also do a film with Tom Hanks as sort of a foghorn leghorn character? Yes, it was awful. It was called The Lady Killers. Yes, and to be honest, no, I didn't like it, but those are the Coen Brothers films that come immediately to mind. The Lady Killers is one of the first... Coen Brothers films that comes to mind. Well, I'm sorry, yeah. they The old-timey... You should should be sorry. I know. Well, then they just did, what, Finding Lewin Davis. Inside Lewin Davis. (laughs) Inside Lewin Davis. There's a big difference to be inside of something and to not be inside of something, darling. Well, he he is in the process of finding himself, one could argue. Inside Lewin Davis, yes. This this is not a podcast to argue. I love love the Coen Brothers. They are possibly my favorite filmmakers working today. Um, everything they've done except for maybe the lady killers and, uh, I think intolerable cruelty. Um, I, I just, I have nothing but, but great affection for, uh, I think this is their second movie. What uh, was their right first? After, it was blood simple. Oh, I did not see that one. Also starring Francis McDormand. It's great. It's a little low budget film noir. It's fantastic. Yeah. That's not my speed. Yeah. They also wrote this movie as they are wont to do. Uh, it won an award, Brit. Actually, no, it didn't actually. It was nominated 
for <laughs> the funniest. Nick Cage was nominated for funniest actor in a motion picture, uh, and by the American Comedy Awards, which I think are made up. Yeah, they have to be right. No, and he did not win. So what right. does that tell you? It tells me it's it's all a sham. It's a fraud. And no, this is pretty bad. Uh, the Cage genre. Did we want to? And they do tend to fall so far into a couple of different, you know, big bucket genres. This one, we believe, would be his part of his lovably dopey cage series. And we've seen in his early career, he tends toward lovably dopey. So uh, let's suffice see. it to say he is not choosing lovably dopey roles any longer. But right, right. We'll we get had, to that uh, later. We had Valley Girl was lovably dopey. And so was uh, Peggy Sue Got Married. Yes. A lot of lot of dopey. Yes, but, but lovable. This may be the pinnacle of, of the dope. Yeah, it may be that all of those roles prior were just leading to this inevitable conclusion. Well, those questions and more will be answered after our break. Uh, first up, we are going to play a song called Way Out There uh, by Carter Burwell. It's the one on the soundtrack that I know you recognize, and if you don't love it, you better not listen. Welcome back. Let's start our uh, official review of Raising Arizona. Nate, what is your history with this movie? Well, I will keep it short and sweet. I really like this movie a lot. I have for a long time. As a as a young man, as a little boy, I just thought it was great. Um, and now as a grown man, full of life and... Regret? Regret. Like... Possibly this podcast. Sardonic. Yes, exactly. Cynical and twisted. Uh, now Corrupt, that, corrupted by sad, the man. This sad shell that you see before you still is, is quite tickled by raising Arizona. It is was, this is, the one gleam of hope yeah, that this bitter uh-huh, world has left you right. with? It makes me so happy and so little else does. Um, <laughs> and I, it's probably it's probably my first introduction to Nicolas Cage, most likely. My dad loved this movie growing up. I saw it a ton, and I was really excited to uh, to talk about it today. Great. How about you? You know, I have a passing familiarity with this film. It's been out for long enough that if you are in the world for any length of time, you stumble across it, but I do not share your inherent love for it, nor do I ever remember seeing the whole thing all the way through before we sat down to watch it. So you could you could basically call me a newbie really? for the most part. I okay. mean, I knew the plot for the most part, but I again, like you, I sort of missed some of the nuance, I think, before. But now 
I'm an old wizened woman who sees all of life laid out before her. I'm going to stop talking. Well, wonderful. Well, let's uh, do a quick plot synopsis and then we will start to break this thing down. Criminal H.I. McDonough and policewoman Ed meet after she takes mug shots of the recidivist. <laughs> with, with continued visits, High learns that Ed's fiancée has left her. High proposes to her after his latest release from prison, and the two get married. They move into a desert mobile home, and High gets a job in a machine shop. They want to have children, but Ed discovers she is infertile. Due to High's criminal record, they cannot adopt a child. That's when the couple learns of the Arizona Quints, sons of the locally famous furniture magnate Nathan Arizona. High and Ed kidnap one of the five babies whom they believe to be Nathan Jr. High and Ed return home and are soon visited by High's prison buddies, Gail and Evel, who have just escaped from prison. Under the brothers' influence, High is tempted to return to his felonious ways. Their problems get worse when High's supervisor, Glenn, proposes wife-swapping and High assaults him. That night, High decides to steal a package of diapers for the baby. Ed sees him robbing the convenience store and, furious, drives off without him. High is forced to flee on foot from the convenience store, chased by police, gun-toting store cashiers, and a pack of dogs. Ed eventually picks him up, leading to a tense ride home. At the McDonough residence the next day, Glenn approaches High to fire him, reveals he has deduced Junior's identity, and blackmails High, threatening to turn him over to the police unless Glenn and Dot get custody of Junior. Gail and Evel overhear this conversation and turn on High, tying him up and taking Junior for themselves. Gail and Evel leave with plans to rob a hayseed bank with Junior in tow. When Ed comes home, she frees High, and the two arm themselves and set out together to retrieve the child. En route, Ed suggests that they should end their marriage after recovering the boy. Meanwhile, Nathan Arizona Sr. is approached by the bounty hunter Leonard Smalls, also known as the Lone Biker of the Apocalypse, who offers to find the child for $50,000. Nathan Sr. declines the offer, believing that Smalls is his son's kidnapper. Smalls decides to recover the child anyway and sell him on the black market. He begins tracking Gail and Evel and learns of their bank robbery plans. Gail and Evel rob the bank but leave Junior there as they make their getaway. One of the bank's anti-theft die canisters explodes in their loot sack, disabling the car and incapacitating them. At the bank, Smalls arrives for Junior just ahead of Ed and High. Ed grabs the baby and flees. High is able to fend off Smalls for a while, but soon finds himself at Smalls' mercy. As Smalls throws High to the ground and prepares to kill him, High holds up his hand to reveal that he has pulled the pin from one of the hand grenades on Smalls' vest. Smalls struggles to get rid of the grenade, but it's blown to pieces when it explodes and sets off all the others. (sighs) I'm sorry. That's what he says. Yes, I... That's a nice impression, honey. All right. (laughs) Thanks. Hi, and... (laughs) High and Ed sneak Junior back into the Arizona home and are confronted by Nathan Sr. After Nathan Sr. learns why they took his son, he understands the couple's predicament and counsels the young couple. When High and Ed say that they are breaking up, he advises them to sleep on it. High and Ed go to sleep in the same bed, and High has a dream about Gail and Evel reforming after returning to prison. Glenn gets his due from a Polish-American police officer after telling one too many Polak jokes. And Nathan Jr. gets a football for Christmas from a kindly couple who wish to remain unknown, later becoming a football star. The dream ends with an elderly couple enjoying a holiday visit from a large family of children and grandchildren. Aww. Aww. That's so sweet. It was sweet. I love this movie. All right. Don't make fun. Let's do it. Okay, let's do it. What do you think? What do I think about what? What do you think? You know, I thought it was fun. I enjoyed it. 
we actually watched this movie with some friends of ours and we all had a good round of laughs during the movie. I thought there were some very exciting and fun highlights that I'm sure we'll get to, but uh, overall I thought it was great. Yeah, me too. Um, let's see. It starts off with some voiceover and, and uh, HI getting thrown into uh, various mug shots. Yes, I think that if I remember correctly, he is a frequent robber of the shortstop convenience store chain. Yeah, convenience stores in general. I yeah, think. that was his forte. But no live ammo. Interesting. Because, because they can't, uh, it's not armed robbery if there's no bullets in the gun. He's figured out the flaw in the system. Ironic, because for the most part, High is not what you'd call a particularly intellectual man. He's eloquent. Yes, and we should talk about that. Okay, talk about it. Well, the whole movie has this sort of veneer of hick, but really, there is an almost, dare I say, Shakespearean quality to the script, which makes it, I think, all the more enjoyable and funny when you see some of the situations these characters get themselves into and the way that they describe themselves and the situations that they're in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Everyone speaks on kind of a, a higher level using just a very eloquent vocabulary. And I just love it because, you know, it's off the entire movie. There's something kind of ethereal and um, and kind of otherworldly to it, almost like we're watching a fable instead of real life. So, well, one of the reoccurring motifs at the beginning of the movie is is high getting his mug shot taken by Ed, played by Holly Hunter. And seeing kind of the evolution of their relationship growing in these little five or ten second snippets. Uh, at first, he's he's very I don't know sexist or cocksure, I guess, and uh, and calls her a little uh, little desert flower. And she's really having none of it the first time they meet. She's pretty tough lady cop. Exactly, and uh, which you expect her to be. But we see him growing emotionally as a person over the first few uh, over the first prison montage we see him in therapy yes that's true yeah and uh and we learn that uh one of the scarier inmates uh believes he's a woman trapped in a man's body so why do you use the word trapped huh why do you say you feel trapped in a man's body well, sometimes I get the menstrual cramps real hard. That was one of my favorite jokes as a kid, and I had no idea what he was talking about. Oh, now you know. Now it comes full circle. I also love that every time High robs a convenience store, he blames some part of society instead of himself. Did you catch that? No, I didn't. What I What struck me was that he is generally a very earnest person. When you're seeing him go through all of these sequences of robbing and getting caught in mugshots and sitting in front of the, you know, panel trying to decide his fate for that particular round of robberies. He's very earnest. I think he believes the things that he is saying. What's funny to me is that his behavior doesn't change, but you, you can't fault the guy for actually really giving it the old college That's a pretty try. bonehead name. They got a name for people like you, hi. That name is called recidivism. Repeat offender. Not a pretty name, is it, High? No, sir. That's one bonehead name, but that ain't me anymore. You're not just telling us what we want to hear. No, sir, no way. Because we just want to hear the truth. Well, then I guess I am telling you what you want to hear. 
Boy, didn't we just tell you not to do that? Yes, sir. Okay, then. And so the second time Hi meets Ed, she's crying because her fiance left her. Uh, Doesn't he make some sort of vow? Some yeah, sort you tell of him, solemn vow? Right, you tell him... You tell him that I think he's a damn fool and you can tell him where to find me. And he, he begins and he, he proceeds to recite the address of the prison on which farm road they can, he can find him at. I love it. <laughs> I love it too. But well, he's passionate. So like I said, he's passionate and earnest. Now here's my question. Would that make an impression on you if you were Ed? That's, it would make an impression. The kind of impression it would make remains to be seen. Why is she, what is she seeing in him? You know, that's a good question. Maybe she's attracted to his passion and his commitment, even if it's to crime. I think it's becoming more commitment to her. Well, certainly by the time they end their second encounter, she's engaged. Not literally, folks. Now, let me ask you this. A young 23-year-old Nicolas Cage, interested? He was not a bad-looking guy back in the day. We've already established this in, in earlier podcasts, but... All right. Another another one of my favorite parts about this um, these beginning scenes is some of the conversations and the visions even that High has while laying in his uh, prison cot, and the little and the old guy above him talking about how when there were when there were no crowd ads, we ate sand. Sand. He's like you ate sand, <laughs> and I don't know why. Don't mind me. I just think that's wonderful. <laughs> I will say, I think the way that the story is established at the very beginning of the movie has, it just has a really quirky and fun way of setting up all the characters, all the big major plots, all the things that you need to know and care about before you really get rolling with the film itself. It's just, it's, it's a fun way to sort of establish place and characters and a really little short bit of backstory and just sort of here's how we got ourselves into this confounded, tangled mess. It's just, I love it. I think it's really creative. Yeah, it's really good. And one of the things I really like is every time High goes in front of the parole board, the next scene is him robbing a convenience store and explaining why it's not his fault. It's the uh, son of a bitch Reagan in the White House. And he even goes into kind of a uh, discussion about about incarceration, if, if it's more for revenge or rehabilitation. I just I just think it's super smart, super clever. And it's just a wonderful representation of the Coen brothers' voice. I just, I think it's great. So what happens after his second or third I think round he, of mug shots I think with he Ed? Gets, he, gets, he gets three mug shots, and then the fourth time they meet is uh, him walking in and proposing to her and uh, saying, howdy, Kurt, <laughs> to the guy that she's taking the picture of. But he uh, proposes to her as a free man, and uh, she accepts. And then from there, I think the story moves fairly quickly through marriage and setting up home life and... The salad days. That's right, the salad days. The good days. Sitting outside in your 80s lawn chair and your bath towel with a cold drink of tea in your hand, just watching that painted desert sunset. Exactly. It actually looks kind of nice. Life could not be any better. I kind of like that life. Well, it seems nice to me. He works in a sheet metal shop. Drilling holes, listening to old codgers tell their ridiculous stories. And so at some point soon, Ed decides that the next logical step is to have a baby. And so they have calculated the days where she will be most fertile and uh, try their best on those days and basically every other day otherwise. Oh, those salad days. Makes sense, though, if you think about it. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's not a crazy plan. There's few flaws, except... I'm barren. That was, actually, that was actually pretty good. Poor Ed. She comes rolling up with she her comes, police cruiser on uh, and her siren on. Oh, she comes flying up that dusty old driveway. And this brings us to one of the, the funniest uh, scenes of the movie. We're going to play it right now of, uh, of Hi and Ed in the uh, doctor's office explaining uh, the uh, situation they found themselves in medically. Ha-ha. I'm barren. At first, I didn't believe it that this woman, who looked as fertile as the Tennessee Valley, could not bear children. But the doctor explained that her insides were a rocky place where my seed could find no purchase. It was inconsolable. So they find out they can't have a baby of their own, which is super sad. They try adoption, but obviously with uh, High's criminal record, that's not going to be happening anytime soon. Doesn't doesn't Ed at this point lose all her interest in domestic yes, duties? Yes, That's yeah. one of my favorite scenes. It's short and sweet, but man, it is just classic. Her sitting on the edge of the bed, hair askew, staring into the distance. Exactly. Surrounded no, it, it's, by it's crazy. Great. Yeah, they're losing all interest in each other, in life, and uh, you know, that's just it's it's kinda what happens. You kinda all the excitement and the the, the flare is out of your life and so they're really kind of between a rock and a hard place until they see on the news that the Arizona quints were born. Oh, those quints. They just have more than they can handle. Just have more than they can handle. Five babies would be a lot to handle. I mean, they just have more than they can handle. They have more than they can handle, honey. They have more than they can handle, huh? Man, we could do this. I think we're pretty good. I like our impressions. Anyway... So the Quints are born to Nathan, Arizona, the unpainted furniture king of the Southland. I love it. It's wonderful to me. <laughs> His wife, too. She's so buttoned up with her high-necked, long-skirted get-ups and her prim and proper hair. It's amazing that five babies could have come out of that. Well, you know what? Love knows no boundaries. Yes, Okay, great. Yes. And so about 11 minutes in, we actually get, we get the setup of the movie. We see the, uh, we see that their car with the ladder strapped to the roof heading towards the, uh, the Arizona household. And we get the title sequence 11 minutes into the movie. And I don't know if I've ever seen a title sequence start that far into a movie. It also kind of helps establish the sense of timing and gives you a good feel for what the tone of the movie is going to be, that it's kind of an anything could possibly happen sort of a film, which yeah. is fun. It, it keeps you guessing pretty much the whole way through. Yeah. The next big scene is an extended scene of Nicolas Cage playing with babies. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know exactly what he's doing in my mind. If I'm going to steal a baby, which is not part of my life plan, but if I were, I probably would run in there take a baby and run out. I don't know. I think maybe he was, you know, choosing like puppies from a litter. Which one, which baby, which, which baby does he connect with? Which baby does he feel a good vibe from? But man, does he take a long time with those babies? Yeah. And it gets a little, I mean, don't get me wrong. Nicholas Cage is great. And this is funny, but there is sort of a slapstick to it. You know, at one point right. babies are crawling out of the room and he's diving under cribs to grab babies. And then, other babies are climbing on top of him as he's under the crib. There's just a lot of physical comedy that I'm trying to think. Have we seen that much from Nicolas Cage at this point? I don't think we have. Like a slapstick. Not really like a cartoonish vibe. Yeah. You know, it's that's in- definitely what we get here. And it's interesting to me that 
the Coen brothers can get that kind of a performance from him. We've seen other directors get different sort of performances from him. Some of them good, some of them not so good. And this is just a really different sort of a um, tone that he sets as an actor with his character. And I don't, I'm, I'd be real curious to know how much of that was rehearsed and how much of that was just sort of him spinning off. We know that he's done that in other films that he's, he's been in in the past. So, but it is interesting. And if you, if you think about that, as you're watching Raising Arizona, this really, the, these directors can get a kind of performance out of him that I have yet to see in his early work. It's, well, you, it's very, very different. You know why, you know why we saw this in, in doing my research for the film. I read that he came on set with a lot of ideas, just like he did with, uh, Peggy Sue. Peggy Sue got married. He has lots of ideas about how to play the character, and they shut him down at every turn. Oh, interesting. They said, nope, you're going to do it exactly the way we want it, and um, they kind of restrained you know, every natural instinct he had to go insane, and this is what they wanted, and so they got in my opinion, a great performance. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's fun to know that and to see, because really this is one of his best performances. I think that we've seen and we'll get to ratings and all of that. But if you compare it to, you know, like Peggy Sue got married, which was his prior film where, you know, Coppola's directing and he's coming in with all of these crazy wacky ideas, like how to do the voice. And he's sort of being given creative license. Doesn't always go as well as, as he probably wanted it to, but here with the Coens, they, to know that they shut him down entirely, you know, they obviously are very good at their craft and know what they're doing and they can command a very good performance from him. Probably as an actor, I would think he'd have to stretch a great deal to not play to his strengths or do the things that, you know, maybe his instincts want him, he wants to do. Yeah, exactly. That he has to really be reined in and, and go in a different direction. So anyway, the, the baby scene is a good example of sort of cages we haven't seen him yet in his early career. And another thing we get here is some very interesting artistic direction. We get a lot of like baby eye view cams and point of view cams. And honestly, it happens all the way throughout the movie. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting choice that's made. It really puts you into the action and puts you into the shoes of some of the characters. And I really think it's a great choice. At first, it was a little off-putting, like when the baby is jumping out of the crib onto, uh, onto Cage's butt. But it continues through the movie enough in action scenes and in, in um, dramatic scenes, like it just, it works really well. It definitely had that low budget filmmaker vibe to it, but I think it really, really works for this movie. Yeah, I would agree. So the next uh, major scene we get is bringing the baby home. And uh, it's a really, really sweet scene for me. Just, they have little streamers up and they have a little sign, welcome home son. And it just, I don't know, warmed, warmed the cockles of my heart. And it is sweet in sort of an offbeat sort of a way. I mean, yes. And on the face of it, we have people stealing a baby. Sure. Okay. But, you know, the way that the film portrays it is this, this it's this couple trying to make go at life, having hard times, doing their best and, and actually wanting something to be genuinely excited about. What, what I think is really funny is when they bring the baby home, they try for this family photo that doesn't ever quite take. <laughs> we're, we're about to pop here, honey. And it's just hilarious. I mean, yep, we're set to pop. the comedic timing is spot on. Yep, we're about we're we're about ready to go here, honey. It's, we're about set to pop. I just I, I can't get enough I just of love it. it I, I could watch that scene over and over again. And and you get that really high pitched flash kind of 
were noise that you only get, you only remember if you're a child of the 80s. Well, and you've got her earnestness and her anxiety and his ten- he's anxious and tense and they both just want this so badly. They want it to work out perfectly right. And it's just really, it's like you said, it's really sweet and tender. Man, there's just a jolt of comedic timing in there that just makes the whole thing go. It just makes the whole thing work on a, it's like surreal level. It's great. So now we get one of the best scenes of the movie. The prison escape. And we actually don't see Gail and Evel breaking out of prison, but we see them being birthed out of the muddy ground. And it's definitely, it's really, really funny. And it's just basically accentuated by them screaming for about 90 seconds straight. It's... It's wonderful, and it's there's definitely a, a birth allegory, like a new birth. They are coming out of the ground like a baby would come out of its mother, and it, it you know coming out screaming. I don't exactly completely understand the symbolism, but it is there, and it is hilarious. Yes, it, it's it's the first time we see John Goodman on screen. It establishes, I think, these this pair of brothers is just sort of these wild cards, and. Really, truly, that's what they turn out to be. You love them. They're strange. They're super confident. They see this as their career. Sometimes you got to put career before family. That's exactly right. Oh, I right. just love it. So, yeah, we've got our, our anti-heroes being birthed out of the mud and then cleaning themselves up at a local gas station. With the pomade. With the pomade. With, with, with handfuls of pomade. Oh, yeah. It's just like, ugh. They, they soon go and track down their, their old prison buddy, High. On this night that they bring the baby home, of all nights, and Ed's not having any of it. No, she's pretty. She's pretty peeved, and High's caught between a rock and a hard place, trying to please his wife and make room for his buddies. And man, you've all been there. Yeah, I've I've never been there. I've always put you first. Right. However, I can understand how weaker men might feel torn. You know. <laughs> Emotionally. Yeah, weaker men. Yes. Lesser men. Sure. Might feel that way. And I honestly think this is some of the best acting Cage does in the entire movie, kind of walking that line between being one of the boys and being a responsible adult and loving his wife and kid. Yeah, and we can talk more about this in a little while, but it's it's interesting to see sort of that there is a little bit of a motif of coming of age, of trying to find your place, of trying to figure out, okay, what is my life going to be about? I think that's one of the the main themes of the movie, really turning um, from boyhood to manhood and everything that comes along with that. All the responsibilities and the, the, the burdens that come along with becoming more mature and becoming an adult and not just doing what you want when you want all the time and robbing convenience stores because that's what you know how to do and because you actually find it fun. It's about being responsible and uh, living for something beyond yourself. And I think we see High starting here, but really moving forward in the movie, really struggle with um, becoming the man he's supposed to be. But he wants to. He wants that. It's it's probably the hardest thing in his, he's ever done in his life. So High goes to sleep that night and has a vision, has a dream. Do-do-do. The lone biker of the apocalypse. Do-do-do. He was the... Do-do-do. <laughs> and I think it's <laughs> and I think it's interesting that High describes him as the fury that would be when 
the mother when finds Mrs. Arizona finds her child missing. Do do do. So it's like do do do. All right, I'm done. So it almost feels like High is responsible for conjuring up this demon, this ghost that has been brought into the world because of his sins. What's your favorite part about the writer of the apocalypse? I love that he destroys innocent creatures. I love that he has blackened baby booties hanging from his leather vest. That's right, because we learned that he was sold on the black market as a young man himself. Uh, the Arizona family discovers that their kids have been taken. Kid. Um, only yes, one. sorry, sorry that only one. that that Nathan Jr. has been taken. There's a there's a pretty funny scene of um, of the police and the FBI kind of taking over uh, the Arizona mansion and kind of bungling through. Is bungling bumbling bungling bungling? Well, they bumble through, but they also bungle. Their... They bumble as they bungle the investigation. Yes. There yes. we go. Nailed Very, it. I love it. And uh, this is obviously the point where the search is on for the baby. It's going to hit the news. It's going to um, get out in the media. And people are going to start wondering where the McDonough family got this little bundle of joy. In the meantime, the McDonough's have invited good company over to, I think, sort of rub elbows with what they consider to be normal families or normal people. And that takes the form of... High's boss, Glenn, Glenn and his wife, Dot. Yeah. Played by Francis McDormand. Francis McDormand. A young, young Francis McDormand. So happy. So excited about babies. And tell us, tell us a little bit about, uh, about Glenn and Dot's life and family. They're naders. Well, I love, I love this scene. This is probably, if I had to choose this, this might be my favorite scene of the movie because this is where um, it's encapsulated the hell on earth that it is to be a parent. <laughs> hey, now. I'm just saying. Uh, we get, what do we get? We get kids beating on High's car. We get a boy writing fart on the wall in crayon. <laughs> we get a little kid spraying uh, 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 High with uh, a squirt gun in his crotch saying, Mr. McDonough wet himself. And uh, we got Glenn telling racist uh, jokes and um, talking about a semen. Say, that reminds me. How'd you get that kid's darn fast? Me and Dot went into adopt on account of something went wrong with my semen. And they said we had to wait five years for a healthy white baby. I said, healthy white baby? Five years? Okay, what else you got? Said they got two Koreans and a Negro born with his heart on the outside. <laughs> it's a crazy world. Someone ought to sell tickets. Sure, I'd buy one. And um, you can feel the walls closing in on high. Well, and then we've also got uh, Dot scaring the daylights out of Ed with the talk about the vaccines and the diptet and... Uh, Gotta get your diptet. And health insurance. Do we have that high? That's right. Do we have that? This is it a diptet? Gotta get your diptet. Yeah, it's a great scene. And you just see... I think this might have been the movie where Nicolas Cage perfected his crazy eyes because he really yeah, starts to see... Started- Eyes widening and crazy looks and well it was it was reality dawning on him that he no longer lives for himself it is it is game on here and and life just got really 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 real and he is not ready for it it's great I also love how he gets pelted with jello about three or four times while oh he's yeah trying to have a conversation that green jello never ceases to hit its target Glenn has a great way to relieve the tension 
of parenthood. Yeah. What is that, Nate? Well, he and daughter swingers, as in to swing. <laughs> all told. He's talking about sex. All told, while Glenn and Hi are strolling through the desert in their um, sporty, sporty white golf shoes. So this recent piece of news affects High in a most peculiar way. Yeah, he punches him in the face. Yeah, it wouldn't be a raging moment, but nonetheless, he does not take the idea of swinging or wife swapping with Glenn and Dot. Keep your anyway. Well, <laughs> I gotta work on this. Keep your goddamn hands off my wife. That was great. Yeah. Way to come to his wife's defense. He did, and that, she wasn't even there. That's what I would do. But as a result, he gets fired. He gets fired. Right, and so highs at the end of his rope. They are driving home. I think we see that whole encounter with Glenn Dot, and then we just possibly see a, a lapse of time where all of this is sort of sinking in, just the fullness of being a parent and giving up your life. And now he's doing it unemployed, and his wife is now full of a whole sea of worries about raising a baby that maybe weren't there before. And maybe he's just turning and turning this thing over in his mind. So, so honestly, he goes to the one thing that, that has given him solace, the one thing he feels like he can control in this life, robbing convenience stores. Nathan needs some huggies. It's right before. Nathan needs some <laughs> I'll be back shortly. Nathan and he goes in and needs some hoogies. And we proceed to have one of the best police chase scenes ever put to film, in my opinion. Oh, it is glorious. We get uh, Nick Cage gets chased by a pack of dogs. We run through houses. We run through a, um, a an entire grocery store. The funniest thing to me is the cops are literally shooting. They they probably shoot at him a hundred times with wanton disregard for any sort of personal property or innocent bystanders. Well, they are it, just trying to kill everything and everyone in their path. And the fact that in the midst of this chase scene, uh, High actually jogs his way down. Well, first, he drops the diapers from the convenience store in the middle of the street because they're weighing him down. He's got to get away. Then later, as he's continuing to be chased through the grocery store, he actually makes his way down the diapers aisle, but does not stop to grab the first box of diapers that he sees. He goes all the way down to the end, choosing premium Huggies, the diaper of choice for criminals on the run. Well, Huggies had to have sponsored this movie. They had to have. They had to have, but it's those attention to those kinds of little details that just makes it so much fun because you're already enjoying... Oh, listen to me. I'm starting to turn into them. You're already... You're already enjoying... You're already enjoying a quality chase scene with all of the elements of the good chase scene will involve. And now, you got yourself a fine detail grabbing the Huggies. Honestly, it's one of the reasons why this movie's famous and it is just a wonderful scene. Um, Beautifully shot, Edited perfectly and hilarious to boot. It also includes a lot of those POV shots that you mentioned earlier that exactly. you enjoy so very much. Give us, Nate, the details of how the chasing finally winds up. Just kind of a cherry on top of this whole fantastic, you know, three minute long stretch of film. Well, my favorite my favorite part is, is when he finally gets back in the car with his wife. Um, she's reading him the right act and, and telling him how irresponsible he's being. He's giving her directions. It's, it's a right up here, honey, and, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, and you don't know exactly what he's doing. And ultimately, as they're having this fight um, and driving through the streets, he's bringing her all the way right back around to where the uh, original Huggies he stole from the convenience store sitting in the middle of the street. And he opens the door, grabs him, and they drive off into the... I'm sitting here with this stupid grin on my face just even thinking about it. I just love it so much. Yeah, that was... It is. It's one of the quintessential chase scenes, I think, in modern film. It's just fantastic. So they get back to their palace 
to their mobile home, and uh, Gail and Evel are there, and things do not look good. There are probably a hundred beer cans strewn about, just exactly what you want to see as soon as uh, you lose your job. And and Ed's not having any of it. She she tells them they have to leave first thing in the morning. So she takes the baby to bed, and what follows is a good example of sort of that tension that we've been describing for high of coming between what is it that you love that you know to do well and and what is the responsible thing to do and that kind of manifests in the form of this great scene with Gail and Evel and High talking about a potential bank robbery and in that scene John Goodman has maybe one of the best lines of the whole film there's a lot of good one-liners but this might be my favorite takeaway in which John Goodman leans in to High and says, dead serious, I'd rather light a candle than curse your darkness. It's just, just it's it. just so, it's just so marvelous. It's just so, so and, I don't and, even and really while he's even proposing know, to write, rob a bank. I don't really even know exactly what it means. I just love it. I think it's, it's just such a great line. And it's really, it's in the middle of sort of this, this whole scene that, they're all going back and forth, but really John Goodman's doing the majority of the talking and he has such excellent delivery of, of their whole plan, their operation, their dreams, how they're going to just move through the Southwest robbing bank after bank until they have enough to retire. And he's just got this whole big, beautiful plan mapped out and he believes in it and he believes that it's what they're supposed to do. And here you kind of believe it along with them. And man, it is just, it is just one of the best, it's just one of the great scenes. I think for that particular character. And he kind of wins high over high, uh, then writes a, a pretty eloquent, uh, goodbye letter to Ed explaining why he needs to go. And, uh, he can, I cannot tarry. He may, he mustn't tarry and, uh, he's going to leave and she'll be better off cursing his name than having him around. And it's super sad, but you understand why he makes the decisions that he makes. I kind of do. You know, it's a he good, feels like he's worse for them than than he is good for them. It is an interesting uh, change to the feel of the movie because you really start to see that their relationship is fractured after the fight in the car and then, you know, the tense situation at home. You, you start to see that some of the cracks are there. And, and so he makes that decision, I think, in light of all of that. And yeah, it, it's a good character arc. I would yeah. say for him. And so now we get a scene again with the lone biker, of the apocalypse and, and basically the main scene with him in the movie, at least the main dialogue driven scene. And he goes to uh, Nathan Arizona's unpainted Arizona warehouse and barges into his office and explains who he is. He's a bounty hunter. He's going to find that baby and he's either going to get $50,000 from the Arizona family or he's going to sell the baby on the black market. Did it work for you? You know, I didn't think about it much at the time, and it certainly moves the story along to where you see it going there inevitably at the end, the showdown with the biker and high, but it's a little out of place with the rest of the story. It's it's actually a very serious, straightforward scene. There's really nothing in it that is surreal or even comical. Yeah, and, it, and honestly, that. for me, it's one of the scenes in the movie that, that actually doesn't work very well. The I, I believe the actor is Randall Tex Cobb that plays the lone biker. And I just don't, he's kind of got this nasally thing going on with his voice. And, and maybe that kind of threw me off a little bit, but I just didn't like his line reading. I didn't like the delivery. It's one of the scenes in the movie that really doesn't work for me. And in a movie that most, almost every scene 
does. And so this kind of stood out to me, especially this time watching the the film as um, kind of out of place and, and not quite the same tone as what we've we've seen before. Yeah, my only thought is that, well, a couple of things. One, that they are, the directors are trying to establish this lone biker character as truly formidable and not someone with, with whom you can reason or rationalize or even get a little bit of a comedy out of, that he really is as foreboding as High imagines him to be. Perhaps they're, they're trying to establish that this is not something to joke around about. He's, he's better to look at visually than to hear him talk. In my opinion, that's well, just me. And he only has one major scene with much dialogue, yeah. so maybe there you go. So before High and the uh, brothers leave to go on their their spree across the Southwest proper, um, Glenn comes over, and um, he's in a neck brace, and uh, he's really playing up this injury that he got um, from being punched by High, and uh, he lets High in a little secret that he has discovered that uh, they know who this baby is and they're going to take the baby for themselves. Themselves being? Dot and Glenn. Right. For that family. Because Dot needs a little baby to cuddle. So essentially Glenn is blackmailing Black, High. him, yeah. Yeah, either give us a baby or we, we turn you in. And he's fired. And he's got a medical bill he's got to pay. Right. So things are not looking good on the Glenn front. Exactly. And so the, the only other problem is that Gail and Evel hear Glenn they put it together and they decide they're going to take the baby for themselves. So before they're even out the door on their way to this robbery, High now has two additional parties threatening to take the baby and really not just threatening, Gail and Neville do take the baby in this fantastic fight fight scene. One of the best fights. That just totally destroys the trailer. It's like ultimate slapstick yeah. physical comedy Crash, at its people finest. People crashing through walls. We may not have a lot of cage rage, but we have Goodman rage in all yes. its glory. Yes. Goodman con- has cage rage in I this am, movie. I am convinced that John Goodman is the sleeper hero of Raising Arizona. Absolutely. He is phenomenal. Absolutely. Without him in this movie, it would not be the same. No. He just has this side character bit perfected, and it, it shows up multiple times throughout the film, but in this scene in particular, he just rails on high Gail does and absolutely destroys him and his home. It's fantastic. I don't know exactly what it is that gets me so much, but when High raises his hands over his head and scrapes his knuckles on the popcorn ceiling, it just sends shivers up my spine every time I see it. There was was a visible and verbal reaction from from our audience. Yes, exactly. With the popcorn uh, scrape. Yeah, I I had a hard time with that, but I also laughed my butt off. It's just so funny. So the brothers tie up High. And they take off with baby Nathan, with baby Nathan on ready to go on their spree. And uh, Ed gets home and she is none too happy. No, but she's not angry. She's dejected. She unties high. And then you have this really hilarious scene where she's sitting pretty quiet and dejected. And he is railing. I know you're worried, honey, but believe me, there ain't a thing to be worried about. We're absolutely going to get him back. There just ain't no question about that. We'll get him back. That's just all there is to it. And you want to know another thing? I'm going to be a better person from here on out. That's final. That's absolutely the way it's going to be. That's official. You were right. I was wrong. A blind man could tell you that. Now, they ain't going to hurt him, honey. They're just in it for the score. But I ain't like that no more. I'm, I'm a changed man. You were right. I was wrong. We got a family here. I'm going to start acting responsibly. So let's go, honey. Let's go get Nathan Jr. And we cut back to the car and... The brothers are really bonding with this baby. Everyone in this movie seems to bond with this baby. Yeah. Why is that? What is it about babies that people love so much? 
Well, for one, this baby is... Now, wait, wait, wait. Do you love babies? <laughs> I love babies. Explain that. They are innocent and sweet and untouched by corruption and a symbol of hope and they smell good. The top of their head. Yes. Yeah. Not the bottom so much of the baby. Yeah. The top of the baby. Sometimes they have themselves a little accident. (laughs) Now, listeners, if you have not smelled a baby's head in a while, you go up to the next random- Find a baby. Find a baby. Walk down the street in any major metropolitan city. Find a baby. Find a baby. Smell the baby. Don't ask. Smell the baby. Find a baby. Smell the baby. Smell it. And leave immediately. Run away. Screaming. <laughs> You'll be fine. Trust us. Tell them, tell them you heard it on a podcast. So there you go. You'll be all right. Anyway, they're falling in love with this baby and uh, they actually bring him along on their robbery. And it's right? hilarious. Well, doesn't uh, Gail declare passionately that they'll never leave this baby again or that they'll never give this baby away? Or is that Evel? Does Evel fall for the baby? He's little Gail, Gail Jr. now. There's there, hijinks ensue. They there's a very funny scene where they're buying diapers for the baby and having the old man behind the counter explain how they how the disposable diapers work. I guess those were a new thing in the eighties. And then in the process, proceed to rob the man and make him count to like eight hundred and sixty five Mississippi. That's right. One Mississippi. They take the baby to the Two bank robbery. They take, yeah. the, they take the baby to the hayseed bank that they rob. And the motif that's being repeated is the baby is actually being left behind in the road. All these people who say they actually really care about this baby are not taking good care of it at all. They're putting it in very dangerous situations. They're leaving it on top of the car and then driving away twice. They're taking it into bank robberies. They're taking it into bank robberies. How do you love something that much and, and treat it so poorly? Well, and the other interesting thing that we discussed after watching the movie, there are at at any given point, there are about five different parties interested in this baby. You have High and Ed, Glenn and Dot, Gail and Evel, the lone biker, and then the Arizona parents as well. That's right. So as, as well of, as the entire kind of state of Arizona kind right, of following on along. high alert. So you have a number of people who really want this baby and, and it's never truly explained outright why any particular family desires this baby so much, but it certainly does lead to some interesting questions. Yeah. I think ultimately not to, not to get serious, but I think this is, is one of the themes of the movie is this theme of, finding hope and satisfaction and a feeling of being complete in something bigger than yourself. And I think um, for a lot of people that is having a baby, it's making this thing and pouring yourself into it and give and sacrificing your time and your energy and your efforts toward it. And everyone wants that. It just looks different. And for, for some reason in this movie, uh, all that those ideas are kind of encapsulated in this one baby and it has that same effect on most people that comes in contact with. And I just thought that was really neat and kind of a, kind of a u- universal truth that we see here. Well, so Gail and Evel's bank robbery definitely goes awry. Number one, they leave the baby behind for the yes, second time right. mm-hmm. in the road. They drive off into the sunset thinking that they are on their way to becoming millionaires when... The money that they've stolen. The the, the bank teller put a dye packet in there and it exploded in the car. Right. So they're left kind of as presumably the last we see of them really is that they're covered in dye. 
babyless, stranded in the middle of the desert. Yeah. And that's they, that's yeah. where we leave Gail and Evel yeah, for the of, time being. Kind of aimless and uh and without their without their hope for the future. Right. Without their legacy. In the meantime, we have Leonard Smalls, the lone biker, has made his way to the McDonough household, has determined that potentially the baby is at uh, the bank that they're attempting to rob and is on his way there, as are High and Ed. So there's this fi- one last final big showdown between High and Ed and Mr. Smalls. That's right. And High basically gets his ass handed to him the entire time. Right. And uh, the there's- only... There should be no, there's no reason why he should come out on top in the end. It's a great fight scene. He just gets the snot beat out of him, but uh, ends up winning because he accidentally or on purpose, I'm not sure, pulls a pin on a grenade on uh, the biker's jacket and blows him sky high. Yeah. And again, it's interesting because this particular fight scene is one of the more serious scenes of the film. I mean, it's truly high fighting to the death for his life and for the life of his family. And it ends very comedically. It ends with high and Ed running for cover as a man is literally blown sky high into, into the um, Arizona desert. I think it's disturbing that you think that someone blowing apart is funny. Well, that tells you a lot about me, doesn't it? Are you regretting this, this partnership? now? I actually love you even more now. (laughs) Um, so they defeat the lone biker. They get the baby back. You know, the hard part is that um, in in one of the m- most serious scenes in the movie, they've decided that, that they're going to call it quits after this. Right. Um, it, it's, it's interesting because you don't get much of Ed's perspective. She's actually one of the points of view you don't see that often in the movie, but you see towards the end of it here that she's she's come to terms with what they've done and and with the state of their relationship and she's, she's packing it in. That's right. They've been justifying their behavior the entire time. They, they know it's wrong what they've done, but they're saying, well, they had too much to handle, but I think it's finally, I just wanted to be a mom so badly. And I think it's finally dawning on both of them that, um, they can't handle a baby. At least that's what they think. And that, um, they're not good for each other. It's a very sad and poignant scene. So what they, happens? Well, they decide to return the baby kind of the same way. They go in the same way they, they did the first time. Right. Up, up the ladder. And so they're both in the baby's room, putting the baby down, and they get caught by... Nathan Sr. Nathan Sr. That's right. And what follows is actually, again, a very touching scene. As funny as this movie is, it does have a lot of really sweet, yeah, there's a poignant lot of, moments. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of moments of... of um, with that show real heart. And this is the scene where we really have the notion of who we think Nathan senior is turned on its head. Cause the only other time that we've really seen him apart from when he's being interrogated by these, you know, doofus FBI agents and police officers is in his office with the lone biker. And, and he's just kind of this run of the mill. All I care about is my business tycoon sort of guy. But truly then when you get to the end of the movie, one of the very last scenes when he is talking to High and Ed after they've returned his baby, you actually come to find that at the heart of who Nathan Sr. is, is a very deep abiding love for his wife and his children. And that that really does change his character as he's been portrayed kind of thus far in the film. Yeah. So, so it even sort of underlines this 
theme of a real desire for, you know, something bigger than yourself. Like he clearly has that and he, he doesn't, and he values it. He doesn't take it for granted. And so that it, it just, it's a really sweet scene. He kind of gives them, you know, wedding and marriage advice, if you will. And, you know, certainly doesn't press charges on their (laughs) <laughs> on their kidnapping. Exactly. Um, but it also kind of, which under- I would have well, for the record. Sure. You know, it, it underlines a little bit of the pain that you see that they're in as well. There's, there's, he understands what it is that they're yearning for because he knows that he has it and does not take it for granted. Yeah. So, um, well, he gives them some good advice. He says to sleep on it. Right. And so he does. And this is the last scene of the movie. Really? This high's dream and his vision. Yes, his vision. And I know I said the Glenn scene with the kids was my favorite. I've got like seven favorite scenes from this movie, which probably shows you how I feel about it. But this vision of of the end, I mean, I just I just love it. Um, it Why do you love it so much? Well, it follows the trajectory of Nathan Jr.'s life in High's mind, the way he sees his life going. But really, it I think it speaks to what we all want, at least as parents, like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a dad and I want nothing but the best, not only for myself, but for my kids and seeing this and seeing how in his vision and his dream, how life works out really is poignant for me. Um, it kind of traces the steps of childhood, young adulthood, manhood, not only for this child, but for themselves. He sees a future where Something that earlier in the movie he saw as maybe shackles, maybe as as the world coming down and um, suffocating him. He sees that actually as liberating and the most fulfilling path that he could take, Um, even to the extent where at the end he sees himself and his wife as a loving couple. They're not screwed up with kids and grandkids coming for Thanksgiving dinner and just seeing that as a very, very warm wonderful um, picture of what life can be like. Well, and it also ties up any and all loose ends. So it, it contributes to the theme of completeness as well. You see Gail and Evel kind of seeing the error of their ways and right, return, they break back into prison, right? They jump back down into the hole they were birthed out of. And then you see Glenn getting sort of his comeuppance, if you will, for um, telling one too many Polak jokes, you know, and then you do, you see sort of this imagined life for Nathan Jr. as, you know, an all-American football star who will probably go on to have a very successful life. So there's a lot of, you know, everyone is sort of, the world is, is in its right place for all of these characters. No one's left hanging out there. Did it work for you? Yeah, it did. It really did. There is very much a yearning for, the good life. And, and here is high's definition of that. It's where the good guys win and the bad guys get punished and everyone is okay, including himself and his wife. And, and it is, it does end on a very hopeful and complete note in that way. So that was, was that raising Arizona? I think so. Wow. We did it. We did it. All right. Stay tuned for our final wrap up and our ratings of the movie. But first we need to play another song from the movie. This one is the theme of the lone biker of the apocalypse and it is aptly titled He Was Horrible.
All right. Welcome back. If you're still with us, you've made it through our extended review of uh, Raising Arizona. We hope that you enjoy this movie as much as we do, because it truly is an American classic. Kind of sound like a stewardess right now. Well, I like to think of myself as a guide through the (laughs) friendly skies of Nicolas Cage cinema. Wonderful. That's how I see you, too. There we go. As a wife and mother and also a guide through the the Nicolas Cage journey we're on. That's right. Thank you. Offering you token peanuts. I'll take take those. And seltzer water. I'll take it. All right. This is where we give our ratings. So we rate the movie on a few different aspects. Brit... How many stars for this movie as entertainment? I found it very entertaining. Probably one of the better Nicolas Cage movies that we've seen thus far. Thus far. Always. We're six in. Always an important note to make. I would give it a good, a good solid three stars. Three out of four. Three out of four. That is great. I'm going to just put that out there. All right. Now my rating on the entertainment scale is also a three out of four. Hey. Yeah. It's, it's great. How about this movie as art, as a film? You know, we have talked extensively already about the Coen brothers, and with a few minor exceptions, it I'd be hard-pressed to rate many of their movies as unartistic. They always are well thought out. They're well directed. They're well edited. They always have something interesting to say, and this is no exception. So I'm right. also going to go with a solid three on art. Yeah, I'm going to do the exact same thing. We're... we're- we're doing well here. Yeah, the Coens have a definite um, style, a definite eye for interesting angles, camera shots. Um, I just think it's great. They have their signature written all over this movie, and uh, it doesn't get much better, at least from what we've seen so far artistically, than this. I just thought this was a, a great film, very well put together. And aside from a few Blips. individual scenes, yeah, I, I really, really like the way they put this movie together. Excellent. All right, so down to it, Nick Cage's performance. You know, I enjoyed it a great deal. I'm trying to think, you know, in terms of what we have seen so far. We've seen him in some excellent work. Birdie comes to mind. He's an incredible performance in that. Peggy Sue Got Married even was a, a decently done role. Um, but was it better than those? Was it was it worthy of sort of the top of the list? Um I, I think that this was a, a well done film, well done role. I think he did a, an excellent job acting. He committed to the character and just fed the fact that he was able to keep such a tight rein on his cageisms is probably in part what made this such an enjoyable movie. So I'm going to give him a three as well. Wow. Threes across the board. Threes that's, across that's the high board. Praise. Well, I just decided this. He gets a four from me. Oh my goodness. I, I have not given a four yet. Your first four. This wow. is a tour de force. He is H.I. McDonough. He is. It is so great. No one else could could be this character. He fully embodies not only the cockiness in the beginning, but the kind of responsibility at the end. He is he is so wonderful. Who else could have done it better? I, I I don't know. Will you? I don't if, know. If I say H.I. McDonough, will he pop into your head for the rest of your life? Always. This is one of Nick Cage's best performances, and we're getting it at 23. I defy you, listener. I'm up on my like my my soapbox here. I defy you to find a 23 year old actor now that could do this. This is incredible. It makes me 
so just like warms my heart to think about Nick Cage as H.I. McDonough, as this character. I, I love it. It is as good as he can get as far as his performance goes. Well, there you have it, listeners. We've got probably our highest rated Nicolas Cage film to date. What's our final uh, what's our final total? Unless I've screwed it up, it's getting late as we're recording this, but unless I've screwed up the math, we have a 19 out of 24, which to now is the absolute highest we've gotten. So for now, Raising Arizona is the best Nick Cage movie we have seen. Would you agree with that? The math, I, the math says the math it's doesn't the best. lie. I I agree. Yes, I would yeah, as well. It is it is solid, just wonderful, solid and all the way around. Definitely, it's gonna it's gonna reign supreme for a long time, in my opinion. All right. Without further ado, let's get on to our Nick Cage rapid fire questionnaire. All right. Who, are you ready? Do, are you gonna ask me? Yes. Okay. Go ahead. Are you ready? Yes. In the film Raising Arizona. Is Nick Cage a lady killer? I'm going to go with yes. He is irresistible in those early scenes. Well, he he is for one lady, that's for sure. Is he drunk or high? He never... His name is high. He never gets drunk or high in this movie. We never see a beer can in his hand. Maybe we we do, but he doesn't get drunk. No. Does he have crazy hair? Yes, absolutely. His hair. I can't believe we have not mentioned his hair at this point. It is insane the entire movie, and it deserves the Oscar itself. It is as tall and pointy as the Sararo cactus. Sararo? Keep going, darling. <laughs> as those... Keep, keep as moving. Those. <laughs> Let's keep this train going. Does he have a crazy voice, accent, or inflection? No, you know, he's got this dopey voice, but no, he does not. Nope. No, he's just lovably dopey. That's all he is. He doesn't... I'm only going to give you that. I'm only going to say no because everyone in the film rocks pretty awesome I'm southern think accent. Peggy Sue got married. Right. Is that a crazy voice? Absolutely. This is not. Okay, fair enough. Does he have cage rage? No, you know, I thought he would going into this. I thought I remembered him going crazy. He doesn't. The John best. Goodman has good rage. He does have good rage. But no cage rage in this movie. No cage. Might be a first. Yep, might be might a first. No, Do, no. Does he punch someone or get punched he gets punched several times there is more punching per capita in this movie than uh a f- then there is cage rage done and done and finally that's oh, no, no, <laughs> awful that was an awful <laughs> there is more punching in this movie per capita than a there's a lot of punching in this movie let's just leave it at that folks let believe me take my word for it yes finally does Nick Cage run with a flashlight? No. No. I don't think we've seen him run with a flashlight yet. I'm beginning to wonder why we put it on the list. Listeners, I just want you to know, we're going to ask this question of every film, and you may be disappointed with the answer for a time. But believe me, there will come a day. Right. There will be a day of, there will be a day of reckoning. There will be a day of flashlight reckoning. You, you mark our words. We will not drop this question from the questionnaire. Right. And, and if there you will be there will be gladness. There will be celebration. There will be flashlights. There will be flashlights All right. in the dark. All right. That is our rapid fire. Wonderful. That about does it for this yeah, episode this of Cage Yeah, this is ridiculous. Cast. You know, we're super happy to be back. It's been a long time coming. It was um 
It was the kind of thing that we decided we were going to keep the podcast up and available for download, but never sure if we were going to be able to come back. There was a lot of stuff that that led to our decision to not come back, but now we are here. We are going to be try try to be as regular as possible, a, a few a month reviews, and we're going to uh, soldier on here. Please, please, please go to iTunes and leave good feedback for us. We would love that. Um, send us an email. I love cagecast at gmail.com. We would love to hear your feedback on Raising Arizona. Okay, coming up on our next podcast, we will be reviewing 1987's Moonstruck, Ooh. directed by Norman Jewison, featuring Oscar winner Cher. And not only Oscar winner, for this movie, she won the Oscar. That's right. That's right, everyone. She won the Oscar for this movie. Who else? Oscar winner Olympia Dukakis. And not only an Oscar winner, but an Oscar winner for this movie. Wow. I can't wait. I'm excited. And then, of course, I our, would say, our lead, the leading man in your heart and in mine, Nicolas Cage. Have you seen Moonstruck? What do you remember about the film and what do you remember about Mr. Cage in particular? We want your opinion. We and, want your feedback. And your review. Send us an MP3 and we'll try to get you on the air. Yeah, we will. I guarantee you, I don't care who you are or what you've done in your life. If you send us a review, an MP3 or a wave file of your review of Moonstruck or of Raising Arizona or anything like that, this will be your 15 minutes of fame. You will send this to your mom. She will be proud of you. That's right. Remember to go to iTunes and leave us a four or five store review. It helps. Music this week can all be found on the Raising Arizona soundtrack and our theme song was written by Chris Cornell and Soundgarden and performed by my main man, Johnny Cash. We'll be back next time, and until then, we leave you with a vision of the future. Goodbye, everyone. Bye, we love you. Until the end. And this was cloudier, because it was years, years away. But I saw a old couple being visited by their children, and all their grandchildren, too. The old couple wasn't screwed up, and neither were their kids or their grandkids. Dad. And I don't know. You tell me. This whole dream was it wishful thinking? Was I just fleeing reality like I know I'm liable to do? But me and Ed, we can be good too. And it seemed real. It seemed like us. And it seemed like, well, our home. If not Arizona, then a land not too far away. Where all parents are strong and wise and capable. And all children are happy and beloved. I don't know. Maybe it was Utah. Anyway, your high praise, especially on iTunes, will really help get this little podcast. High high praise. Your high praise on iTunes. High praise. (laughs) It's high praise. (laughs) HI. What are you doing? Your computer's going to restart in 14 minutes.
Oh, don't do that. Yeah, I want. I don't want it to. See if that'll do it.